You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our series, Martin Luther's Five Solas, celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Open with me in your Bibles to Paul's letter to the Ephesians. That's in the New Testament. You can find it in your Bible or in your phone. If you are using your phone to read the Bible, we encourage you to use the YouVersion Bible app because if you log in, you go to the menu and go to the events section, you'll find live notes. So it's everything that's on the screen and sometimes a little bit more. One of the things we like to do here at Whitefields is we like to study through the Bible. We like to go verse by verse through a text of the Bible so we can hear the whole message in context. And so it's always good to have a Bible with you so that you can follow along and and read with us. This year, 2017, marks the 500-year anniversary of the beginning of the Protestant Reformation, which was a movement of turning back to the Bible, of going back to the Scriptures, and of putting the Bible in the hands of the people. And as people read the Bible at this time, they rediscovered the Gospel, and their lives and all of history as a result was changed. And this is something we believe in very much here at Whitefields, is that if you will come to the Bible, if you will open up the Word of God, you will read it, you will discover in it the good news of Jesus Christ and your life will be changed forever as well. And so for the anniversary of the Reformation, we are taking a kind of mini-series right now. This is a five-week series. This is week three out of five, in which we're looking at the five core biblical teachings which were at the heart of the Reformation. This week, we are going to be looking at sola gratia, which means grace alone. The Reformers kind of solidified their core doctrines, the biblical doctrines which they championed into five things that they called the five solas. Sola means alone or only. And they were scripture alone, faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, and to the glory of God alone. And we're going to talk about all of these over the course of these five weeks. Today we're going to look at sola gratia, grace alone, and what the Bible has to say about how we can be made right with God and what grace means because it's even more than salvation. I'll tell you for me personally, The understanding of grace has been something that has revolutionized my life, my my relationship with God, and I hope that uh, this morning as we study about it, it will do something similar for you. So let's begin by reading our text, which comes from Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is God's word. Let's pray. 
Lord, we thank you for your word, and we come to your word this morning, Lord, with a sense of reverence, desiring to hear you speak to us, and Lord, desiring to be receptive to what you have to say. So this morning, as we gaze into your word, Lord, may we see wondrous things that cause us to well up all the more in praise to you and response, and also, Lord, would they move us and and move us in our lives, motivate us in the way that we live, Lord, might we be transformed from the inside out as we study your word this morning. We pray that you would do that work in our hearts and in our lives by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, one of the questions that people often ask is, can people really change? Like, can a leopard change his spots? Can a tiger change his stripes? Can a person really change who they are fundamentally? And one of the things that the Bible says is, yes. They can. That's actually very important that we understand that the Bible says, yes, people can change who they are on the inside. But see, the other thing it says is this. It's not an easy thing by any means. In fact, it's it's actually impossible for someone to just muster it up in themselves and change their stripes, so to say, and change who they fundamentally are. In fact, it's so hard that what it requires in order for a person to change, it requires an act of God. In their life. It requires an act of God in their life in order for them to change. I want to tell you about one man who did experience such a change. He had spent his whole life building a reputation. Maybe some of you can relate to that. He was born into a good family. He was a bright student. In fact, he was so bright and so diligent at his studies as a a young person that he was accepted into a very prestigious academy. And as a young man, his parents sent him off to live at a boarding school in a faraway town. And you can imagine that they must have been so torn by dueling emotions, right? On the one hand, brokenhearted that their young son would be so far away from home and they wouldn't see him except on rare occasions. And yet, at the, on the other hand, so full of pride at his accomplishments and at his abilities and wanting him to reach his full potential. Well, this young man went off to school in his faraway town, far from home, and after finishing school, he began to climb the ranks, and he became a young leader that other leaders looked up to as the future of their community. He prided himself on the fact that he worked harder than anybody else. He put in more effort than anybody else. He cared more than anyone else that he knew, and as a result, he was promoted again and again. And people looked up to him, and he thought pretty highly of himself as well. In fact, he looked down his nose at others whom he considered to be below him, others who were not as committed, who didn't work as hard, who were not as moral, who were not as disciplined. This man's name was Saul, Saul of Tarsus. We read about him in the Bible, the pages of the book of Acts. Something happened, though, that shook his world, that shook his confidence, that kind of rattled the foundations of his life. He realized there was a crack in what he thought was the firm foundation of his life. And he writes about it in in the book of Romans, chapter 7. He says that he was thinking about the Ten Commandments, basically kind of going through them and patting himself on the back for keeping them so well, right? Unlike all those other losers out there who don't do it. He's like, I keep the Ten Commandments, feeling pretty good about myself. And, uh, you know, kind of just in his mind thinking through it, you know. Don't murder. Check. Got that one. Nailed it. Don't lie. Nailed it. Honor the Sabbath. Totally. Don't commit adultery. No problem. I got that one. Don't worship idols. Check. Don't covet. Wait, what? Covet? Wait a second. Don't covet? What does that even mean, don't covet? 
He began to think, well, coveting, what is coveting? What does that even mean? He said, covet means to want something that isn't yours. It's a form of greed. It's a form of jealousy. It's wanting something that someone else has that you don't, and you fantasize about it, what it would be like if you had that thing instead. And coveting is this form of jealousy and greed. And you might say, well, who hasn't done that? I mean, doesn't everybody kind of do that? Well, yeah, but look, this man Saul, you got to understand, this realization shattered his world. It shattered the image that he had of himself as a good and perfect person who did everything right, who was lived up to a high moral standard. You see, he looked here and he saw, wait a second, I actually do that. In fact, I've been doing that for years. He had thought of himself as a person who was good, who was better than most, better than maybe anybody else. He kept all the rules. He kept all of God's commandments perfectly. And yet here was this commandment, which clearly said that it's not just what you do outwardly that matters. It's also possible to sin inwardly in a way that no one else sees in your heart, that only God sees by having attitudes, by having thoughts by having fantasies that are not right in God's eyes. And at that moment, he was devastated, he said. He said, I looked at the law and it slayed me. He says he came to realize there that here he had been spending all his life looking down on other people, you know, patting himself on the back, priding himself on being better than others. But at the end of the day, the truth was that he was in the same boat as them. He was really no better than they were. Sure, he hadn't killed anybody, but for years... Day in and day out, this was his life. His mind was full of thoughts of covetousness, jealousy, greed, hatred, and vile things. And he thought, oh no, oh no, what does this mean? What am I going to do? He later wrote, like I said, about this experience in Romans chapter 7. And he says, I would not have even known that coveting was a sin unless I had read it in God's law and it said, do not covet. And then he goes on to say, this law which I look to to give me life Now it slayed me, it killed me, because it showed me that there was sin inside of me. It showed me that there was something wrong. Saul realized that he had a problem. He had built his whole life, his whole identity, on being better than everybody else, and now he was brought face to face with the fact that he wasn't, actually. So what did he do? Well, he doubled down. He became more zealous. Maybe if he tried harder, he thought. Maybe if he tried harder, if he did more. And maybe he could atone for the sins that he had done. Maybe God would still accept him if he would just try a little harder and do a little bit more. So he began to fight against the people who he perceived to be the enemies of Judaism. He said, surely God will see that. God will see what I'm doing for him and he'll, he'll bless me. He'll be pleased with me. Maybe if I do this for God, then it'll make up for the bad things I've done. The people he targeted, of course, were Christians. He accused them of blasphemy because they said that Jesus was God. And so he led a group of people and they would track down these sinners and they would punish them because he thought that's what sinners deserve, right? Sinners deserve to be punished. The only problem was that was him too, right? He was also a sinner and he knew it. And no matter how much he tried to run away from his shadow, he couldn't run away from it. Therefore, it only followed that he deserved to be punished too if he was a sinner. Like a person trying to run away from his shadow, he could never get away from it. You run and you run and you run and then you turn around and it's still there because the issue is you. You can't get away from it no matter how hard you try. And one day though, something unexpected happened to Saul. One day he had an encounter with Jesus Christ. Jesus spoke to him. Saul certainly had not been looking for Jesus. He hadn't been trying to find Jesus. He wasn't seeking. 
No, he was running. And Jesus came seeking him, pursuing him. And Jesus spoke to Saul that day. And through that encounter, Saul came to understand something about God that changed his life forever. It was the message of grace. The message of grace. It was the message of the gospel. It was the message that God loves those who are unlovely. That God pursues rebels and brings them into his family. And salvation and forgiveness of sins are not things that can be merited or earned, but they are works of God that he does for you in Jesus, even though you don't deserve them. And this man, Saul, he became a Christian. And he was so changed through this experience that he wanted to so distance himself from his past that he took on a new name. He became known as Paul. We know him as Paul the Apostle. And later on in his life, he wrote and he reflected on this time in his life, on his conversion and on his life after that. And here's what he said. He says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me to be faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer and a persecutor and an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And check this out. The grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The overflowing grace of God not only converted this man from unbelief to faith, but the overflowing grace of God went even beyond that. It gave him the strength that he needed, the fuel that he needed to live a lifetime of love and service to God and to others. You know, the same story, in a way, has been played out time and time again. People trying as hard as they can to be good, falling short, getting to the end of themselves, and then realizing that it's all by grace. Over the past two weeks, I've told you the stories of Martin Luther. I've told you about John Wesley and how they both tried harder to be better so that they could earn God's favor. But no matter how hard they tried, they realized it was an impossible task until both of them discovered this same message, the message of the gospel, that God's love and God's acceptance of you isn't predicated on what you do. It's predicated on what Jesus has done for you. Salvation, forgiveness of sins, eternal life. These are not things that you can earn. These are not things that you can merit. These are not things that you can deserve. That would be an impossible task. It would be like trying to jump over the Grand Canyon. Just picture that in your mind. You get a couple people, and some of them are going to be better jumpers than others, right? Like you might be a super good jumper. You might be a better jumper than anybody else you know. In fact, you might be the best jumper in the world. But if you try and jump over the Grand Canyon, it's still going to end up in the same place, right? You're going to get maybe a foot or two farther than everybody else, but the end is going to be the same. The good news of the gospel is that what is impossible for you to do by your own efforts, God has done for you on your behalf because he loves you and he did it in Jesus. There is nothing that needs to be added to what Jesus did for you. There's nothing that can be added. It is finished, Jesus said. In other words, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And what's left for you to do is just to receive what he did for you by faith. And when you do that, God declares you righteous. This is the clear teaching of the Bible. The problem in Martin Luther's time, the time before the Reformation was that that is not what was being taught in the churches. It isn't what he had been taught growing up. What he had been taught and what was generally taught and what is still taught in some places even to this day. 
is that in order for God to bless you, in order for God to accept you, in order for God to save you, you need to go through a complicated series of steps and processes that can help you move closer to God, that can help you become acceptable to God. Martin Luther was a priest. He was a man who was dedicated to the church. He was a professor of theology. And what that meant is that he was one of the few people in that day who had access to the Bible. Because see, at that time, the Bible had been effectively taken away from the common people. To read the Bible, you had to read Latin. Very few people spoke Latin. It was kind of weird that they even made the Bible only, it was only legal to have a Bible in Latin, which is weird because nobody spoke Latin for like a thousand years, by the way, at that point. Furthermore, the Bible wasn't even written in Latin. And so they had come up with this rule that the Bible could only be written, read in Latin, but nobody read Latin except for the scholars and the priests and the monks. And so a very elite group of people had access to the Bible. And even those people didn't read the Bible because they had been told that the Bible is just an old, ancient, confusing book and you're better off just not reading it yourself. Just read, have somebody explain it to you. But Martin Luther said, no, I'm going to read the Bible So he read the Bible, and what he found in the pages of the Bible was not an obscure message, but one that was very clear, very clear, that salvation is by grace, and it's by grace alone. And of course, that's not what was being taught. And so Martin Luther set out on a process of reforming the church. He felt that it was his duty as as a person and as a faithful son of the church and as a priest and as a professor, it was his duty to bring the church back to the clear teachings of the Bible. And there were others who joined him, and this movement became known as the Reformation. And as I said earlier, the Reformers summed up five core biblical teachings which they championed. They called them the five solas. And today, of course, we're looking at the third of these, sola gratia, only by grace, grace alone. And here's what that means. Let me sum it up for you in these words. Grace alone means this, salvation and transformation are not accomplished by our own effort or works, but by God's kind initiative. Salvation and transformation are not accomplished by our own efforts or works, but by God's kind initiative. One of the best places we can go in the Bible to see this explained is the text we read here at the beginning, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. So we're going to look at this text and see what it teaches about the grace of God. There are three things that we're going to go through. We're going to talk about the walking dead. Then we're going to talk about unmerited favor. And then finally, we're going to talk about fuel for the new life. It begins by talking about who we are and as human beings. And here's what it says. Here's who we are. We are the walking dead. In verses 1 through 3. This section begins with these words, which which if they don't surprise you, then you need to read it again because it should surprise you. It says, you were dead. You were dead. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't recall having ever been dead before. I don't remember it. It seems like something I would remember. I've been really bored before, uh, and I've, but I don't think I've ever been dead as far as I can recall. I mean, being dead, that's kind of a It's a pretty terminal condition, right? Like not a lot of people recover from that. So he says, you were dead in the past tense, meaning you're not dead anymore, which is surprising. So what does that mean? Well, keep reading. He says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world. What he's talking about here, obviously, is not physical death. What he's talking about is a different kind of death. He's talking about spiritual death. Now, I want you to remember the context here. This is a letter which was written to Christians. 
Okay, so that's why he can speak in the past tense. To these Christians, he's writing in the past tense, and in just a second, he's going to finish this phrase, and he's going to say, you were once dead, but now you've been made alive in Christ. And he's going to talk about how that change took place. But what all this means is that this is the default setting of all of humanity, of all human beings. This is how we all start out. This is everyone's condition apart from an act of God in their life. Death, spiritual death and deadness. We read about a conversation that Jesus had once with a man named Nicodemus. He was, he was a well-known religious leader at that time, but he was interested in Jesus. He wanted to know more, and so he came to meet Jesus in the middle of the night so that no one would see him. And he, he asked Jesus, he says, I've heard about you. I've heard about the things that you do. Can you just tell me, just sum it up for me, what is the core message that you came to, to preach and to give? And Jesus said this, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That was how Jesus summed up his message that he came to be about. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And at first, Nicodemus wasn't picking up what Jesus was putting down. And he said, how do you expect me to do that? You expect me to get back in my mother's uterus and then come out again? I mean, I don't think she would like that very much. She'd probably get injured if I tried to do that, and I don't really want to try and do that myself. And Jesus said, no, I'm not talking about physical birth. I'm talking about spiritual birth. He says, you, look, you were born once physically, but what you need is to be born again spiritually. That's what he's talking about. So, spiritually dead. Sounds pretty bad. It sounds pretty, pretty extreme. But I'll tell you what, it gets actually worse than that. How You may say, well, what's worse than being dead? Well, keep reading. Verse 2, he says, You were following the prince of the power of the air, and you were living according to the passions of your flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. The prince of the power of the air, by the way, that's a reference to Satan. So not only were you dead, but you were a slave. That's the only thing that's worse than being dead, is being walking dead, right? Being a dead person who's a slave. This is what it says in Titus chapter 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. Slaves to passions and pleasures. In other words, apart from God, you are not free. Apart from God, you are dead and you are a slave. You are a slave to your passions. You're a slave to your feelings. You're a slave to your pleasures. The highest authority in your life, in other words, is whatever you feel like in the moment. And that's not freedom, let me tell you that, because the more you give into that, the more it will ultimately destroy you. Let me give you an example. Just over the past few weeks, if you've been reading the news, you've been noticing that it seems like every day there's another famous person who's getting taken down in the news, right? So all these famous people, we've got actors, producers, comedians, politicians, and it, just one after another, it's coming out again and again that these people did inappropriate, lewd, downright criminal things. And, and people who kept quiet about these things for years, now they're kind of coming out of the woodwork and talking, and it seems like every day we're hearing about another public figure who's getting busted for some lewd and inappropriate thing that they did. And I was reading one of these articles describing what one of these people did, and I, I won't go into details, but essentially, he was just saying, well, I felt like doing it, so I did it. Sorry, I guess it was wrong. And that's what that means. It's people who gave into their feelings, who went along with what their bodies wanted to do in that moment, even though it was wrong, even though it was harmful, even though it was destructive, 
to other people and to themselves. It's a perfect picture of how if you are not ruled by God, you will be a slave to something else. Many times it will be your own feelings or your own passions or your own desires. And here's what the Bible tells us. It tells us that out of all of the living creatures in the world, there is something special, there's something different about human beings. And the Bible puts it this way, the, the thing that makes us different, it's not our opposable thumbs or the fact that we have developed linguistics, it's that we alone were created in God's own image. So that when God created the man and the woman, he created them in his image. And that what exactly that means has been you know, a matter of interest for people who have read the Bible for thousands of years. And what many people believe that it means is that it means that God has uniquely endowed human beings with an eternal spirit, an eternal spirit. And what that means then is that there are three parts that make up who you are, right? You have a body, you have a mind, but you also have a spirit, right? So a body is a part of you, but it's certainly not the whole of you. You also have a mind. It includes your emotions, your personality. But there's also this third part of what makes you who you are, and that is a spirit. You have a spirit. Some people call it a soul. This is the part of you that connects with God. This is the part which will live on even after your mind and your body are, are stop functioning. So animals, on the other hand, they have bodies, usually furry ones, and the furrier the better, right? And they have minds. They have personalities, right? They're stubborn. They, they, can, they can even communicate, but what they don't have, which we do have, is a spirit, that part of them which is eternal, which is made to be in communication and relationship with God. See, that's why your dog never stops to pray before he eats. He doesn't care. He just goes for it, right? He just starts eating. He never stops and says, you know, I should really give thanks to my creator for this. That's why your cat never gets together with the other cats in town to worship on Sundays. Your cat and your dog, any, any animal, they're not concerned with the things of God. What are they concerned with? They're concerned with food, comfort, entertainment, and procreation. And what that means is that, think about this, when a person is dead spiritually, it means that they're not experiencing humanity in its fullness. It means that, in a way, they're living on the same level as an animal, only concerned with food, comfort, entertainment, and procreation. And I'm here to tell you that is a sad and it's a dehumanizing experience. God made you for more than that. In order to experience life and humanity in its fullness, we need our spirits to be made alive. And so here's the picture so far of humanity that this has drawn for us. We are the walking dead. We are dead spiritually. Not only are we dead, we are dead and we are slaves. And if you think that's bad, it actually gets even worse if you keep reading in verse 3. Not only are we dead, not only are we slaves, but we're also destined for wrath. That's what it says there in the end of verse 3, that all mankind, we're all in the same boat, destined for wrath, because we're dead spiritually, we haven't been obeying God, and what awaits us is something that's actually worse than death, and that is judgment and condemnation. And this is a pretty bleak picture. I hope you're having a great Sunday morning, right? Dead, slaves, condemned. And you know what's especially disheartening about this, if that wasn't enough? See, if you're dead, there's not a lot that you can do to help yourself. You ever see a dead person? You tell them, hey, hey, you know, uh, pull yourself together there, guy. You know, just get up. Just be fine. Just, you know, just do better. Dead people don't usually respond to that because they can't. 
And that's the picture it's painting for us here. Not only do you have all these problems, but there is nothing that you can do about it. There is nothing that you can do to help yourself out, to pull yourself together. It is absolutely hopeless. But see, it's only against that dark background that we can understand the brilliance of the good news. And here's what the good news is. The good news is that's not the end of the story. As we're talking about the walking dead, the next thing we read about in this text is God's unmerited favor. That's what we read about in verses 4 through 9. Verse 4 begins with two of the most beautiful words in all of the Bible. But God. He says, you were dead, you were lost, you were without hope, but God. But God, he didn't leave you that way. But God stepped in and he intervened on your behalf. But God, because he is rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved you, even when you were dead in your trespasses, he made you alive with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Here's how Titus puts it. After saying what we read earlier, you were led astray, you were slaves. Then he says, but... But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. You understand how beautiful that is? He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Christ Jesus our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Let me give you a couple definitions here. Justice is giving someone what they deserve. It means giving them no more, no less. You get what you deserve. If it's judgment, if it's, then it's judgment. If it's, if it's goodness, then it's goodness. Mercy, on the other hand, is not giving someone judgment when they deserve judgment. It's not giving someone what they deserve. This is like when you get pulled over by the police and you totally deserve to get a ticket because you were driving crazy. But the officer says, I'm not going to give you a ticket today. I'm going to let you off with a warning. That's mercy. But grace is something even beyond that. Grace is proactive. It is active. It's positive. It's giving. Grace is giving someone something they don't deserve. It's when you treat someone with kindness, even though they don't deserve it. It's when you give someone a gift, not because they earned it, but because it brings you joy to do something nice for them. The message of the gospel is that God, in the ultimate act of grace, became one of us, and on the cross, Jesus took the justice that you deserved so that you could receive mercy. Grace is unmerited favor. We don't deserve it. We can't earn it. God didn't do it for us because we are so wonderful and awesome. He did it for us because he is so wonderful and awesome. It says in verses 6 through 7, not only has he saved us, but for the ages to come, he is going to show us the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us. See, that's what grace is. Grace is God's kind disposition towards you in Christ. Because of what Jesus did, God now looks at you and he is pleased with you. He has a disposition of kindness and gentleness and love towards you. There's no more animosity. It's been taken away in Christ. In verses 8 and 9, we get to the crux of the issue at hand. He says, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. I think there's a degree to which grace can be a difficult concept for us to really not only understand, but really take hold of and really live out. I don't think it's particularly hard to understand. I think it's hard to accept. And here's why, because it's, as part of our human nature, we want to be able to earn things. We want to be able to say, I did it. Martin Luther said this, 
to be convinced in our hearts that we have forgiveness of sins and peace with God by grace alone is the hardest thing. And he went on to say this. If God were willing to sell his grace, we would, be, uh, we would accept it more quickly and more gladly, gladly than if he offers it for nothing. You see, because that's how we, we want to say, okay, but let me do something. Let me give something in return. You know, one of the reasons for this is because grace leaves no room for boasting. It's, with grace, there's really nothing to pat yourself on the back for. It's really hard to be proud of yourself for, for something you didn't earn or deserve, for something that you got for free. See, part of our, our human nature is this. We desperately want to have worth and value. And it's not a bad desire, by the way. It's just where we look for worth and value. See, we have this deep-seated sense that our lives must have meaning and purpose, that surely our lives have value and worth, and we're constantly looking for things that we can point to to say, see, that's why my life matters. And one of the cheap and easy ways, it's like a shortcut, one of the cheap and easy ways that we do that is by pointing at other people who we feel are below us and then patting ourselves on the back for being better than them. We wait for somebody to fall down so that we can stand on top of them and look a little bit taller. And so the way we do it, another way we do it is by pointing to our accomplishments. Look at me. Look at what I've done. Look at what I've earned and achieved. Don't I deserve your acceptance? Don't I deserve your favor? The problem, though, is that the gospel doesn't allow you to do that. The gospel shoots that down. It doesn't allow us the pleasure of patting ourselves on the back. It doesn't allow us the pleasure of, of being proud in ourselves because it says, you didn't do anything. It was done for you. Also, it doesn't allow us the sick pleasure of thinking that we're better than other people because it says, you are a sinner. You need grace just like they do. You are, in fact, so sinful. You needed God himself to come and die for you. But of course, the good news of the gospel is that God loves you so much that he was glad to come and die for you. So what the message of the gospel forces us to do is, if we can't find our value in our accomplishments, if we can't find our value in, in our worth, not in ourselves, not in our accomplishments, not in feeling superior to other people, what it forces us to do is it forces us to find our value and our worth somewhere else. It forces us to find our value and our worth in the only place where we should find our value and our worth, and that is in God and in who we are in Christ, in God's love for us and his valuing of us. See, when you do that, there are two things that happen. When you actually understand the gospel, when it really sinks in, there are two things that happen in your life and in your mind and your heart. Number one is that it makes you incredibly humble. And number two, it makes you incredibly confident. At the same time, you become incredibly humble and at the same time, you become incredibly confident. Martin Luther, his last words were written on a piece of paper that was found in his coat pocket after he died. And he had scribbled them on a piece of paper, stuck them in his pocket, and then right after that he had passed away. And the last words that he had written on that slip of paper were these. We are beggars, this is true. We are beggars, this is true. Now at first that sounds like kind of negative, right? Like, I don't want to be a beggar. But I want you to understand, this was actually a positive thing that Martin Luther was saying. He viewed this as a positive, and here's why. This was a phrase that he used over and over throughout his life in regard to the grace of God. And what he said is that we are like beggars. There is nothing that we offer to God. There's nothing that we bring to the table. Everything is pure gift that we get from God. And so when we understand the gospel, it makes you incredibly humble, and it makes you incredibly thankful, but it also makes you incredibly confident. Paul the Apostle writes again in Romans chapter 4, verse 16, he says, Therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace, 
so that the promise would be sure. The promise might be sure. You see what it's saying? It's saying that if salvation is by grace, then it is sure. Only if it is by grace, then it is guaranteed. And here's why. Because in that case, if it's what Jesus did for you, not what you did for yourself, then it's sure because it's not dependent on you. In other words, you can't mess it up. It's not dependent on you and what you do. It's dependent on him and what he did for you. If it was dependent on you, then it wouldn't be sure. It wouldn't be guaranteed because you might stumble. You might fall. You might mess up. You might blow it. But if it depends on Jesus and what he did for you, then you can be incredibly confident. And that brings us to the final thing that this section tells us about the grace of God. That God's grace is the fuel for the new life that has been given to us in Christ after telling us about the salvation that is by grace alone, that it's entirely God's power and God's initiative that saves us, he then goes on to tell us in verse 10 about another aspect of grace. He says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We've already established that we're not saved by our good works. We saw that in verses 8 and 9 very clearly. But here in verse 10, we're told that it is by the grace of God, that the grace of God is more than just for salvation. The grace of God is that which fuels us to live a life which glorifies God. See, we need God's grace not only to save our souls, we need God's grace every single day to bring honor and glory to him. That's what this verse is talking about. It says we are his workmanship. That word in Greek where it says workmanship, in the original Greek, that word is the word poema from which we get our word poem or poetry. It refers to work of art, an expressive work of art. And that's what God wants to do through you. He wants to make you alive in Christ and he wants to make your life into a living, walking, breathing expression of who he is. A work of art on display for the world to see. A display of his grace. It says that he has prepared good works for you to walk in. And through those good works, he wants to express himself through you to the world around you. As we show people love because God has loved us, we're showing people what he is like. As we forgive people who sin against us because he has forgiven us, we are showing people what he is like. As we bless those who don't deserve it because God has been gracious to us, we are showing people what he is like. And as we do these things, God is expressing himself to the world through us. Jesus said, let your light so shine before others that they might see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Salvation is by grace alone. But here's what I want you to know. Grace is not for salvation alone. It's for more than that. Grace is unmerited favor. And what that means is that every gift that God gives you is an act of grace. Every material gift, every spiritual gift, the strength to do what you need to do, every blessing... It's all grace. And that means that we need God's grace. We need it every single day, not just for our salvation, but for every area of our lives. We need his grace. We need his grace every day in every area of our lives. You know, I think there are a lot of people who have this kind of impression, or they'd give you the impression that it was Jesus' blood, sweat, and tears that got them saved, but now it's their blood, sweat, and tears which keeps them saved, that keeps them going day to day. And their relationship with God and their sense of security, their sense of value is totally performance-based. And let me tell you, if you've ever lived that way, 
it's completely exhausting. It's a terrible way to live. Because the thing is, you're only as good as your last performance. Kind of like a salesman. They say salesman is only as good as his last sale. And an actress is only as good as her last role. And an athlete is only as good as their last game. And it's very easy to think, well, then a Christian in the same way is only as good as the last good thing that they did, only as good as their last time of prayer and reading the Bible, only as good as their last victory or failure in some area in their life, or only as good as the last time they shared their faith or or did some kind of outreach. Right now, maybe there are some of you who this morning, you're feeling pretty good about yourself. You had an awesome week, right? Like you came in here today hoping that somebody would ask you how you're doing because you can't wait to tell them, I'm doing awesome. Thank you for asking. Because this week, you read your Bible and you prayed every single day. It was solid. And you're like, man, you got to share your faith. You had a conversation with somebody. You shared your faith with your neighbor. And for you, church is like a victory lap, man. You did high fives all around. This was a great week. I'm feeling awesome. And of course, God's going to bless me because I had an awesome week. I did all this stuff. Now, others of you, maybe you didn't have a great week. Like maybe you slipped back into some old habits. Maybe you failed to live up to your standards or other people's standards of you. And you feel this morning defeated, ashamed guilty. Whichever side you're on, it's really easy to fall into this thinking, this thinking that goes like this. When I'm good, God loves me more. When I'm bad, God loves me less. But I want you to remember this. That's not how grace works. That's the opposite of grace. Grace is not the merit system. It is unmerited favor. God's kind disposition is kind initiative towards you in Christ because he loves you. See, here's the thing. We're not only saved by grace, but we also stand in grace. And when you really understand that, your good days won't fill you with pride and your bad days won't destroy you, but instead, every day, you will glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And so finally, I'll just end with this. How do you receive the grace of God? How do you do that? How do you experience this kind of change in your life like what we've been talking about? And the answer is very clear and it's simply this. It's by putting your trust your hope, your faith, not in yourself, but in Jesus Christ and what he did for you and inviting him to come into your life and do a transforming work in you. I want to encourage you to do that today. Amen? Lord, we thank you for your kindness towards us in Christ. Lord, we see it. We see it so clearly in this passage. Lord, thank you that you, Jesus, came not to just make bad people good. Lord, you came to make dead people alive. And Lord, I pray for anybody here today who says, I don't know if I've experienced that. I don't know if that's me. I don't know if I've ever actually stepped over that line and received God's grace in that way and put down my yes. Maybe I have, maybe I haven't. I don't know. Lord, I pray for anybody here today who says, I don't know. Lord, that today would be the day when they say, I embrace the gospel. I embrace Jesus and what he did for me. I put my faith and my trust not in myself and my own goodness, but in Jesus and what he did for me. And Lord, those of us who, for whom this is, this is stuff that we've heard before. It's stuff that we've done. We have put our faith in Jesus. Lord, may we do it again today. We can never hear the gospel enough. We can never know it well enough. Lord, may we embrace the gospel again today and put our faith and trust wholly in Jesus and what he did for us so that we can get off that hamster wheel of performance. Thank you, Lord, that it is unmerited. Thank you that it is grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.